I have to imagine of the 101 episodes you guys have done, at least 30% of them involve somebody disappointing their parents by not pursuing medicine, even though they were moving in that trajectory. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a walking stereotype. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Arnab Chatterjee was en route to a promising career in health consulting and policy when he heard a talk by Todd Park that blew his mind and reoriented him to technology and data. He's now a recognized industry expert, leading product at Metadata's Acorn AI. This is Tectonics, I'm Lisa Sunan. I'm David Shaywitz, and we are grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. So David, what's up, man? Yes, Lisa. So um, I read a really interesting book lately called um, Targeted. Have you heard of it? No, I have so it not. Is, is it about Target? So, no, it isn't. It is, uh, but it is related to data. It is by a person named Brittany Kaiser, who was uh, sort of a, a young political consultant who wound up working for Cambridge Analytica ah. and was sort of with them during the whole uh, uh, excitement and drama. And so it was a real insider look at all of what's going on and how the approach sort of worked. And, um, you know, just the incre- you know, kind of like a modern way political campaigns are really trying to use data and how much data they have. And, um, both in really interesting, um, if you can imagine how one could sort of use that level of information for good, but also sort of troubling well, when it's not used for good, I suppose. If you um, listen to us right now, do you think? What? <laughs> oh, this is only for good. So, and I think, and, and in terms of learning how to use data for good, I, I imagine we're going to get some particularly good insights from our guest today, Arnab Chatterjee. So Arnab, so. welcome to the show. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. It's great to be on. Absolutely. Well, we've only been trying for like five years, so I'm glad that we that uh, we finally worked out. Uh, so the welcome. Um, so medicine, it seems, Arnab, runs in your family, you said, including your grandfather and father. You were born in Texas, uh, but grew up in Minnesota. How did you wind up there? Yeah, it's, it's a funny question. Um, so yeah, to your point, I have a kind of a generations of illustrious physicians that run in my family. Um, my, my grandfather in India uh, was a physician in West Bengal, and, and his patients would come from all of these neighboring states to come see him, which were hundreds of miles away. Uh, he actually even practiced medicine, uh, even in, in Minnesota, as part of a, a, you know, a, a Christian mission hospital. And then my dad kind of had a pretty interesting career here. So my mom and my dad came in here uh, to the U.S. in Texas in the 70s. He was already a practicing physician there. And uh, funny enough, he had to reboot his career here due to the medical practice guidelines of the time. So he started off as a surgical assistant. He would deliver newspapers, um, even though he was already a well-seasoned physician, you know, wow. kind of the, the pull yourself by your bootstraps immigrant story. But then he redid his residency at the University of Minnesota. Um, and then he ended up becoming just, a, again, an illustrious physician. He was the sole practitioner of a hospital that was treating Gulf War patients back during Desert Storm in the you know, late 80s, early 90s. And then now he's the, the CMO of the uh, one of the Veterans uh, Integrated Service Networks um, down in Kansas City. So. And then my sister is a physician researcher over at Penn. My brother-in-law is one of those as well. So we have a whole line of these people. And I ended up, um, you know, starting off, uh, you know, in, in Minnesota, where I spent most of my childhood. So, 
And what was your experience growing up there? Uh, you know, uh, in the middle of um, in the middle of the Midwest, did you enjoy it? Did it was it was it um, uh, what was the experience like? Yeah, I mean, Minnesota is a great place to to grow up, and it, it's a it was a really and happy really childhood. I loved it. Yeah, it's it's if you know if you have a threshold and tolerance for you know minus insects, 60, you, know, you like insects. It's if you like place. insects, gigantic mosquitoes. Um, I think there's something like literally fifteen thousand lakes, even though it's a state license place says ten thousand. All of those things contribute to a happy childhood. So um, you know, went uh, went and braved the cold every morning, and you know, have that story to tell my kids that I would get up and you know sit in the sixty degree below zero weather and brave the cold. And I think aside from all that, it was an excellent place to grow up. So like Tom Brady, you initially attended University of Michigan and initially focused on cell and molecular biology. But then, Arnab, your heart wandered and you were ultimately forced to have what sounds like a very difficult coming out conversation of sorts with your parents. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I, I like how you framed it as it was one of these cataclysmic moments in life, which I think it kind of was at the time. So. Um, That's how you described imagine. it. Yeah, I did. I did. And I have to imagine of the 101 episodes you guys have done, at least 30% of them involve somebody disappointing their parents by not pursuing medicine, even though they were moving in that trajectory. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a walking stereotype because in, in some ways I was that Indian child that, you know, had all these doctors that preceded him. And then in my sophomore year of college, you know, I was uh, majoring in cell molecular biology, as you mentioned. And then I had to have the sit down where I was like, guys, I just don't see myself, you know, going into medicine. And, you know, to your point, it was like, you know, did all this stuff, hard science major, everything else, grades were great. And all of a sudden you're like, hmm, yeah, I'm just not going to go in that direction. So that was- Did one your mother, did your mother grieve? I, I think so for at least a, a decent period of time, you know, where <laughs> it was, uh, it was one of those things where, you know, you either continue the family tradition or you're kind of dead to people for a while, but I think they've uh, come around for, uh, come around to accepting uh, my current career choices. And I think they're pretty- You, you said that your sister done. going into it sort of may have saved you. Is that right? Yeah. She ended up as, as sort of the, the banner child in the family, which I think is great. So, <laughs> but so what did you do instead? You, you tell me you were interested in philosophy and you spent your summers working in healthcare. Yeah. I mean, by that point I, I ended up getting the major in, in molecular biology, which I'm very glad I did uh, for reasons that are relevant now to what I do. Um, I ended up minoring in, in uh, moral and contemporary philosophy. I love reading, you know, uh, you know, Kantian literature and things like that. And Who's your think, favorite philosopher? Oh, I'm a Sartre fan. I think um, Schopenhauer, I mean, we could go on, you know, there's a few different ways this could go. So it depends, <laughs> but uh, on any given day, which way the world's headed, I usually, you know, try to ascribe some kind of philosophical belief system behind it. <laughs> and right now it's pretty dark. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I, I spent, uh, you know, my time at Michigan actually was more experiential learning in some ways. Um, I spent like four summers working in different aspects of the healthcare industry. Um, and I think that's where I started seeing these intersections between policy and, and the healthcare business worlds, which is kind of where I ended up. So, you know, my freshman year, I remember I worked um, for an HMO, which was then called Group Health uh, back in Minneapolis and now Health Partners, um, mm -hmm. you know, run by some really incredible people, George Halverson, who ended up at, at Kaiser and Mary Brainerd mm -hmm. and others. Um, and then sophomore year, I ended up doing a total 180, uh, the other extreme, and I went to go work for uh, physicians for a national health program. Uh, which is a single-payer physician advocacy organization. And that was some of my earliest understanding of Medicare for All and, and, and mailing flyers to physicians and, and listening to these really impassioned talks about, you know, the injustices of the current healthcare system and, and how it sort of uh, 
kind of thrusted and parried with what's happening in managed care and HMOs at the time. So kind of the other extreme. And then what junior, was that? this was 2000 and oh, let's see what year, 2002. <laughs> okay. And then junior year, I ended up working at uh, SAMHSA, um, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration for HHS and uh, spent a lot of time on mental health policy administration there. So, you know, those experiences, I think, were, you know, in some ways defining in terms of how I thought about the healthcare system as a whole. And that kind of complemented the science background, you know, the way I thought about philosophy, I guess. But that's sort of all ended up where I am now, I guess. Yeah, you know, SAMHSA is an interesting organization thinking about that. You know, now in the current situation we've been having uh, around coronavirus, there's been just an explosion of mental health and substance abuse issues, right? I think people very upset home, you know, access to, to drugs and alcohol, very sad situation. Do you think we've gotten better at caring for people, you know, with those problems or is it kind of same old, same old, not so great? Yeah, I think, you know, it's always been about getting past the stigma and it's always been around um, identifying these problems earlier in the process and being okay as a society and how we characterize and diagnose and, and treat. And I think it's still been a pretty flat curve in my, my opinion, in terms of how we've actually managed to, to treat patients, how we've even managed to, um, you know, characterize this disease or how we even talk about this as a society. So, you know, the funding, you know, for SAMHSA has always been on the lower side compared to other agencies. And um, I, I think there's been some valiant efforts, you know, in, in the private sector to help with this. But at the same time, um, there's some real systemic problems in terms of how we address mental health that I think yeah. coronavirus exacerbated and, and sort of highlighted. Yeah, it seems to me that we've maybe gotten a little better on the stigma front over the last few months. People recognize. Yeah, definitely. I wonder if that'll be persistent, but anyways. So Arnab, you continued your training at Cornell and what, pursuing what sounds like an intense three-year dual degree program. And interestingly, it was the same program that our previous guest, uh, Nancy Schlichting, completed and also former Aetna CEO, uh, Mark Bertolini. It sounds like my definition of torture but I'm guessing uh, you enjoyed it. What sort of things do you learn in this sort of program? I think it says the guy with two doctoral degrees, right? <laughs> so, I guess I there think, are many different forms of torture. But yeah. Exactly, <laughs> right. So, no, I, I think this was actually a really interesting uh, integration of, of the policy and, and the healthcare business worlds. And you would take courses at Cornell that were tailor-made to understanding healthcare strategy, healthcare accounting, and then um, alongside that, you know, issues in social policy, economic policy, fiscal policy. Um, so it was a really well-rounded understanding that, uh, you know, I, I think I gained out of that graduate experience and really, you know, somehow um, I managed to leave that program or those programs with um, what I thought was a really good, robust foundation. And then when you graduated, you pursued, wait for it, consulting, um, mm -hmm. spend, spending several years uh, with Deloitte before leaving for a job in government. It was 2009, the ACA was in the air, and uh, it sounds like you felt drawn towards DC as you described it. Can you uh, uh, explain that? Yeah, this was uh, 2008, and as we know, there was uh, sort of an imminent recession, and you know, at the time, it just felt like a really good idea to get into a job that people usually start to cut when there is a recession. So <laughs> I joined consulting and, uh, you know, it was, I had spent a summer at Deloitte um, before that during grad school and, and was fortunate to get an offer to go there full time in the Boston office. Um, I think what made that job interesting, I did a bunch of, you know, pharma and insurance uh, payer related stuff in that first year. And then in the second year, I actually spent it uh, with the state uh, insurance department for Pennsylvania. 
and worked on a range of different issues there, uh, ranging from like ICD-10 conversion, which was a really fun topic at the time, to you know different ways that you know the state insurance department dealt with like these several regional players um, in Pennsylvania. And I think um, you know what just seemed evident and and really important at that time was that we were probably dealing with the most um, transformational piece of legislature since 1965, you know, when Medicare and Medicaid came out. And I think just having to be there and be some part of it and end up in DC just seemed like the right thing to do, especially having worked in state government. So I, you know, applied to uh, one of the fellowship and leadership programs there and, and got in and, you know, found myself kind of immersed in DC at the time. So you started working on Medicare fraud and you were writing about budgets and policy, as I understand it. And then your, your life changed. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, uh, you know, I started uh, within the um, office of the Assistant Secretary for Financial Resources, and um, what made the job interesting is you get to tackle all things related to healthcare fraud, waste, and abuse. So, you know, when the the government is overbilled for procedures, or you kind of start to see the, actually the the ways that you sort of hotspot fraud, you know, to adopt a term by a famous author, you know, and you can start to kind of find ways to see where certain states have like a higher amount of activity. And we started creating a lot of legislation around, you know, better targeting those efforts. Um, but then kind of abruptly um, at the time, you know, there was a, a guy named Todd Park who had just arrived in government and he... Uh, brought his entire Silicon Valley mindset with him. And he gave a talk in, I remember this vividly, but he gave a talk in the, the grand hall of the HHS auditorium where he started talking about, you know, open data and, you know, in a very bombastic, but also very authoritative way that Todd tends to speak. Um, you know, he kind of introduced these new concepts that I didn't know much about, but I just felt so drawn to the idea and the energy and the enthusiasm around it as, as Todd tends to do. And uh, I basically begged the guy for a job. I, I, I kind of approached him afterwards and I was like, I don't know what you do exactly. And I know you're trying to do something really transformational. So I will do anything to be a part of it. And I spent um, several weeks then kind of working 40 plus hours on my financial resources, healthcare policy job, and then doing whatever Todd wanted until um, you know, he, was, uh, he was able to offer me a full-time job on his team. What was it about Todd that yeah. was, I mean, I know him and he's, he is really a compelling guy. Sure. Uh, but what was it about the topic or the person that was so interesting to you? Like what made you want to, you know, jump ship to do something completely different? <laughs> I, I think, um, you know, government has a reputation for being uh, a little bit of a stale, slow moving organization and anything to, you know, jumpstart and catalyze things. You know, I, I think there's a lot of um, talk around that, but to actually see if it was possible and to actually take someone with his pedigree and background and reputation for starting companies you know, I, I didn't know anything about Silicon Valley at the time. And um, I was just more excited by the idea of combining those two things together, um, bringing some of those ideas. And then I also was genuinely drawn to this idea of, of the value of open data. I think that's a real thing. And, you know, the fact that the government sat on all of this information for so long that, you know, the, the Todd parallel analogy that he used was, um, you know, if this can happen in energy and in transportation, why couldn't it happen in healthcare? So, you know, I think the thing that he was starting at the time with folks like, you know, Bob Kocher and, and Aman Bandari and, and others who were part of that, uh, Greg Downing, they were all kind of on board with this idea. And I felt like that was just something that I wanted to be part of. It sounds like you really work with the dream team there and just loved your time. Now, the question I'm really eager to ask you is this, which I don't know the answer to at all, but it seems like, one, like Todd is able to make the impossible seem inevitable, right? Um, but he seems like an irresistible force confronting the immovable object of healthcare. Looking back, how do you think that collision turned out? Like what, for all the 
inspiration. How successful do you think he's been at driving durable change? Like, what have you learned from that? Yeah, I think that era of government was interesting. And if you really want to talk about moving needles and measurement in government, it's important to look at it through a bunch of different angles. Um, one, I think, you know, due to the whole wave of different C CTOs that came in, you know, whether it was Anish um, or, or others, Megan, who followed him, you know, there was really a talent change that took place in government, I think. And it's not like the previous generation wasn't talented. It was just a mix of different people coming in, various backgrounds. Uh, you were able to get, you know, the quote unquote Google type talent uh, to come into government and, and spend their tours of duty there. I think that was a marked change in terms of how you start to kind of create, um, you know, sort of the necessity around the change um, and start to change the culture around that. And, and I think that was um, one avenue that you could use. I think the second thing is, you know, standing up platforms and then creating these mandates and measures, um, you know, the work that came out of CMS to make uh, APIs, which is still happening, you know, by the way, um, under the current administration, but, you know, being able to, um, you know, quote, unquote, liberate that data. Um, at the time, it was section 10332 of the ACA that, you know, allowed that to open up. And I think those were important policy changes that took place, you know, under that type of leadership. Um, so if you're using that as a measuring stick, I think there were certainly some positive changes. I think if you kind of look at the, the, the culture of government now, kind of the changes in GSA and those organizations that have really institutionalized some of these um, types of teams um, standing up and continuing and maintaining things like the Innovation Fellows Program, there was lasting change, I think, that took place. I, I think it also is a bit of a, you know, in a Mars law situation, you know, like, you know, in the moment, I don't think Todd was able to create immediate change. But as we now are, you know, however many years out from that, we're starting to see actual fruits of that labor, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, and yeah. I think if there's anything we've learned from the pandemic, it's the importance of integrating data and using it for good, right? And then I think without some of the work that he and others that followed him, like Anish and Susanna and others did, we probably wouldn't be able to do what we're doing right now. Exactly. Yeah. No, you're right. And, and these things rely on transitions, too, and being able to continue and also innovate and create new programs. And I think that's happened. So it's good to see that, you know, some of that actually did carry on from not just the enthusiasm and the exciting ideas, but, you know, there's more of a, a, a movement around it now, if you will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you stayed there for, I think, something like a year and a half, but then your next stop, improbably, based on the trajectory you're describing, seems to be Merck, where you had, because you'd gotten a call from former Tectonic guest, uh, Sachin Jane, who Lisa's going to say I'm mispronouncing probably correctly. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... And uh, okay, and he, where, but he had joined Merck as CMIO and wanted you to join. What was his pitch? Yeah, um, you know, Sachin had a really Sachin, interesting right. vision. Yeah, it's okay. And, and you know, I think your, um, one of your podcast titles was around, um, you know, I forgot the topic, it was like patient centricity before is cool. Um, yeah, I think Craig Lipset. Right. Yeah, Craig, exactly. And I, I think um, one of the things that we were doing at Merck before is cool was real world data. And um, at the time, you know, Sachin was standing up a team uh, under, you know, the, the great Mike Rosenblatt, you know, and, and I was fortunate to get a, a call to come join this team. And he had a really, Sachin had a really grand vision for how do we broaden the scope of data use at Merck. And again, I kind of went into it a little bit blindfolded because I hadn't really had much pharma interaction up at that point, except for a couple of years of consulting. But Merck has a storied reputation and, um, you know, the fact that uh, Sachin and Mike were kind of coming up with this idea um, also at a time where like, you know, if the, the, the term real world data was like a four letter word in some pharma companies, you know, at the time, and this was 2012. 
And, you know, his pitch was that, look, the way that we can kind of build this is to think about um, differentiated and academically rigorous data partnerships. Uh, we could work with technology companies. We could really start to demonstrate insights out of the data, right, and, and build expertise, uh, build new methodologies, right? So I think that was alluring and, and really important and being part of, you know, kind of building the data ecosystem again, which is sort of a continuing trend from what we did in, in HHS. And then moving into Merck was actually in some ways more in a linear path than I thought it would be. Um, but what were the biggest team, obstacles to getting adoption of real world data within uh, the Merck community? Yeah, I mean, it, it started with um, sort of this holier than thou uh, adherence to the fact that like clinical trial data are bust, right? Um, it was really that mindset for quite a, you know, a decent period of time. And at the time, I think, you know, there was just a lack of regulatory acceptance, frankly. Um, you know, you have to think about the fact that pharma companies have been working with claims data for quite some time now. And that is sort of a bread and butter staple of epidemiology or health economics or outcomes research teams. To introduce um, EMR at data at that time was uh, really antithetical to how some of these companies did business. And it was interesting because um, I remember we were one of the first purchasers of the Optum, you know, data set and Humedica. And that, that data set was expensive and it sat on the shelves for two years, right? Oh. And it's through no fault of anybody's, but it was more that people didn't know what to do with it, right? Like, how do you interpret this data? Why is it messy? Why are the fields structured? Why are they unstructured? Like, how am I supposed to leverage this data set? And then in turn, how do I submit this to a health technology assessment or to a regulatory agency? So there was just sort of a disconnect between us wanting to bring novel data sets that had the potential to be more revealing and more insightful, but at the same time, there was sort of a, um, a complete culture clash with like, what do you do with this information? And I think probably the other thing I'd point out is, um, you know, everyone searches for like these use cases around real world data, where is it applicable? Um, what is sort of the silver bullet that it's solving for? And I don't think that had been identified at that point, um, you know, in the way that it has now where you can point to a few examples where you're saying like, this is moving some kind of regulatory or some kind of, uh, you know, clinical development needle. That's really interesting. Yeah, it was before um, you sort of had some of the proof points, but you sort of had a vision. You were like using your early for where the industry was, but there was a potential industry need. And so you started collaborating, it sounds like um, intellectually, with colleagues at McKinsey who were sort of um, uh, just, you know, trying to do sort of a big think on big data in healthcare, which led you to joining the sort of the McKinsey team as in this area. Can, how did that happen? Yeah, I was at uh, Merck for about uh, a little less than five years. And at the time, um, I reconnected with uh, some partners at McKinsey who I had a chance to work with in government. Uh, there was the big data and healthcare report that came out that McKinsey was, is well known for. And we worked with that team actually while we were in government um, to you know, provide some of the underlying data to support some of the, the uh, claims that McKinsey made around the size of the market at the time. Um, so I think there was a a parallel movement happening with strategy consulting firms where they were moving more into solutions and creating digital shops. And I think that all happened around 2015, 2016 as well. So um, McKinsey started building out a pharma analytics group. Um, and I was asked to join the team to help stand up solutions um, around areas like real world data, uh, around value-based contracting, um, clinical trial operations. So I thought it'd be a really good way to expand my viewpoint on some topics I'd spent, you know, five years working on and, and uh, you know, bring that over to, to McKinsey at the time. And you were there as, as there was really starting to become real interest in this area. I think that's so interesting, David, because I'm curious about your thoughts on that, because I think, you know, 
even I think some of the conversations I had with CROs five, six years ago were like digital, you know, real world data, you know, all this stuff. Eh, you know, it's kind of cute. But metadata was there, you know, pretty early. Um, why? Why was it that you guys were believers when the others were sort of, eh? <laughs> yeah, well, let me, if I can take a step back on the consulting side, I think um, there was a group of folks who sat within real world organization groups or the folks who headed up observational research and, you know, McKinsey would sort of use that as a, an opportunity to kind of capture how people were thinking about the applications and how you'd actually start to use, um, you know, data in differentiated ways. And I think we were still, even in 2016, um, you know, we were still kind of looking for square pegs that were fitting into round holes, you know, and, and it wasn't still clearly defined, even uh, unlike now, you know, where um, RWD is sort of a, an everyday part of the pharma vernacular. Um, even back then, I think McKinsey was really trying to coach and help clients understand that this is where it makes sense to use it. Here's where it could tie to help with, for example, um, clinical trial uh, inclusion exclusion criteria and patient recruitment. Here's where it could fit within outcomes research. Even just identifying like the handful of use cases before it became sort of a common thing to use uh, real world data as part of, you know, HTA uh, submissions or, um, you know, kind of starting to grow the, the evidence base around post launch. So that was probably the experience at McKinsey um, that I, I think I took away that there was still need to, to help better define the marketplace, help you know, clients understand what to do in these situations. And then we actually ended up doing a lot of the analytics works alongside these more traditional um, you know, biostat or health econ teams, um, kind of applying different ways of, of using the data. Um, yeah, and then I spent the other 50% of my time at McKinsey you know, working with the big three tech companies out in the West Coast and on their um, AI machine learning strategy. And that was sort of the other extreme, you know, where you were looking at these companies with very forward thinking methods on things like, you know, diagnosis prediction models and, and you know, advanced applications of NLP. And that was in somewhat stark contrast, but also like sort of the, the push that we needed to really understand like what types of data, what types of models you need to make a dent, you know, within the healthcare industry. And they were also looking for um, how to apply these types of algorithms and models in practice. So these were two kind of push and pull levers that were happening at the same time while I was there. And then that's kind of what led me over to, to metadata, which had been thinking about this problem for some time. I know that you joined metadata. I know that like a couple of months later, they were acquired by Dassault. Um, uh, but, but nevertheless, what, if, what are you focused? I know we don't have that much time left, but I'm really curious. So you, what was your intention when you joined metadata? And what are, you, what are you most excited about in terms of what you're working on? Yeah. So uh, again, you know, kind of, um, I think this opportunity came up when uh, one of McKinsey's um, partners, uh, Sastri Chilakuri, you know, asked if I wanted to come help build data science products. And, and MediData, you guys have interviewed, you know, Glenn before, I think, in a previous uh, podcast. Yeah. Um, really, really cool company uh, that has been around for 20 years, and they are sort of a household name in electronic data capture. Um, but for the last maybe five years, they've been trying to really focus on building products around data science. And that ranged from you know, uh, imaging data, um, where they bought an intelligence company for imaging about five or six years ago, to real world data. And they bought a company called Shift about two uh, years back. So all these you know, threads were tying together at the same time. And, and uh, when the opportunity came up to lead a product for Acorn, um, you know, the thought process there was, OK, the biggest crown jewels that Metadata sits on is actually access to about 10 years worth of clinical trial data, the data that it manages on behalf of sponsors uh, and has access to based on sponsor permission. 
So if we were able to link things like clinical trial and real world and help contextualize, you know, the entire preclinical, clinical, and then post-launch journey, that would be pretty cool, right? Like that type of data is really important, rich, and, um, you know, also structured. <laughs> and if you're able to bring that to life and then tie it to real world settings, like you could probably develop a very different dimension on how you evaluate patients. So I what probably have asked my question now, but what about the data? You know, why metadata was the more... Um, forward thinking in this area, not just bringing you in, but like, you know, for a while they've been, they've been thinking about how to use data, you know, in the CRO context much more, I think, comprehensively than many others. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah, it's, you know, I've asked Glenn and Tarek this and, and in some ways it was really clairvoyant, you know, 12 years ago to ask, uh, you know, pharma sponsors to contribute the data. I do think there's like a philosophical question here around like the contribution of, clinical trial data for the greater good to expedite product development. And, and I think that's really at the ethos of what those guys were thinking, which is that, look, like if you guys contribute, you know, as part of what's called like a give to get program, if you contribute and we de-identify and make, you know, do all the things that are necessary to, you know, ensure we're not, um, you know, exposing IP or anything like that. And that's part of a much larger database, um, you know, which is about 6 million patients now and, and 22,000 trials. Can you start to build products like synthetic controls? Can you start to build, um, you know, ways to look at clinical trials across an entire disease or an indication? And I think that's what these guys thought about a while ago, you know, and it's kind of blossomed and materialized into this new thing now, especially with how you think about it in the context of, of real world data. But um, I think that's maybe what the original intention was, was kind of how do we kind of better move advanced products in a really slow clinical development timeline? So do you think you there's been progress real? by pharma on the whole digital adoption side? Is it still just talk or is there real action going on? Yeah, I think there's real action. Um, you know, it, it's really, again, kind of going back to your previous questions around like what you call as needle movement and what you call as, you know, a, a thing you could point to that said that this, you know, changed sort of the, the landscape of things. And I think we'll probably wait a couple of years, right? Uh, again, just like we did in government, you still have to kind of wait for these results to pan out. But everyone is starting to ask, you know, like, what is the definable use case for something that I did that was digital, right? And like, what well, is that's what I want to ask you about. Exactly. So what would somebody use Acorn, the product you're developing, say, to deliver? What is my business question that you're going to answer for me? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a range of questions that kind of point to the pharma lifecycle, right? So if you could leverage historical data as an example, um, operational data from a clinical trial, and use that as the basis for how you do better site enrollment or predicting which patients might end up at certain sites, and you can you do that faster, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of value in that. I think maybe one way to think about this is um, I was talking to a, you know, pretty well-respected um, biotech uh, investor recently, and, and he pointed to like the, the failures of drug development in like three different lenses. Um, there is the uh, failure of the biology, right? So you have sort of the candidates and being unable to identify like whether this is gonna move forward or not, but you're making sort of a biological hunch or an assumption. Yeah. Then there's sort of the failure in the clinical trial design itself, right? Which is like the endpoints that you pick and the outcomes, the criteria that you use on the basis of the trial. And then there's the operational side, right? Which is like, how do you start to actually get patients enrolled and how do you actually deliver on that side? And I think, you know, the questions that we're really focused on are sort of the second and third buckets and increasingly we'll move into the biology piece. But for now we can use our data for a bunch of different reasons, whether it's, you know, to better improve enrollment. Um, we're actually doing this in COVID as you guys can imagine right now, which is just stifling the way that, that hospitals are able to recruit patients with um, 
you know, for, for the trials that were traditionally super um, busy for things like oncology and rare disease, where pharma plays, you're seeing a real halt, you know, across the board and across countries on what you should do. So can you leverage kind of near real-time data on, on COVID sites to better understand the pivot? Um, so that's kind of one example. The other example is like, if you can use historical trial data for things like synthetic control arms, um, this is a pretty well accepted idea. And, and you know, folks like Flatiron and others uh, have built external control arms for some time now, but leveraging clinical trial data is, is an interesting way where you're kind of simulating and, and augmenting or replacing the control arm. And that has real value if these are from old trials that, you know, kind of mirror the patient population that you're trying to target. So let me ask you a last question because we're basically out of time, but I'm really curious about this. What do you think is the biggest blocker to um, adoption of, 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 of what you're doing or real world data more generally? At one point, people thought maybe, like you said earlier, maybe it was the FDA, but I mean, it seems to me you couldn't have a savvy, I mean, with Amy sitting there, you couldn't have a savvier uh, group of people uh, in DC right now um, uh, you know, at the agency who at least seem very willing to seriously look at, at, at thoughtful ideas. Mm-hmm. When you're talking to pharma companies, is it the way they're thinking about it? Is it just the field is, needs to mature more? What are the biggest hurdles to more effectively using real world data to improve how pharma works? Yeah, that, that's the big question, right? And I think um, there's probably a few different ways to look at this. So one is, you know, there still needs to be sort of a... Um, a reproducible path towards, you know, the regulatory side of things, right? And I think I do think those those walls are coming down a little bit. And I think there's going to be momentum in the space around, um, you know, seeing, you know, there are companies that are serving as real world data platforms on behalf of the FDA, there are committees, there are, there's Amy there, obviously, like, there's a lot of momentum in the space. So I think that will start to change. Um, I think the second thing, though, is really around, like, how are you continuing to think about the representation of the data? So we're, you know, it takes pharma time to grow an acceptance on what they think is like usable. And I think, you know, EMRs are just starting to become part of that conversation. Um, You know, for a while, I think just a regular EMR was just, like I mentioned, on the shelf for a couple of years. But then you have these oncology specific EMRs, you have TA specific EMRs that have a lot of value. And that's sort of, you know, helping pharma understand like what is, you know, the richness they can get from that type of data. But it has to be something that pharma can rely on and say, is this data epidemiologically representative? Is it longitudinal? Is this something that I can look on and say, this accurately captures how I think a patient is responding to therapy, you know, outside of a trial setting. Um, So I think, you know, really, there's always going to be questions around like, you're never going to find any two, you know, epidemiologists will say a data set's good, right? There's always going to be some kind of debate on, uh, you know, whether this is um, valid or usable. And and I think that debate's going to rage on. It happens in everything. But, you know, I think the other thing that you have to think about is as we move into things like AI and machine learning, and I use that word move into in a little bit of a cautious way, because we need to be really careful about pace and expectation. And, you know, the whole notion of, um, you know, AI doctor and things, it, it's, it's a little bit overhyped. So in terms of how we're using advanced models, um, you know, can you start to point to actual examples of, you know, things like real world data helping how we think through um, what's going to happen in drug discovery or how we're thinking about it's going to impact post-launch or post-market? I think that aspect of, of, of machine learning is still to be determined. Um, and people are building really interesting models in the space. Are they generalizable? Are they reproducible? Are they things that you can say over and over again can be applied into clinical practice? Um, that's not quite there yet either. So 
that's probably the other hurdle we're going to have to jump if we want to see some kind of traction. Wow. It's such interesting to hear about your journey. I think you have a, a lot of patience, you know, the way you're describing it. Like you have a real sort of a long-term view. And it seems like you're, you're of a knack for being in a room where it happens, in part because I think you're making it, you're making it happen. So we're so grateful to have you on the, on the show today. Yeah, really yeah, great. Thank you, guys. Glad you finally yeah. made it. <laughs> Thanks so much, Lisa. Thanks, David. Really appreciate the time with you guys. All right. Well, I thought that was really interesting. It, uh, I would say it was worth the wait. You now people talk about the PayPal mafia, all these people who were there that went off to do amazing things and yeah. different parts of, of tech and, uh, and other industries. But there was also kind of like a Todd Park ONC mafia, you know, people yeah. who have gone off to do incredible things all around the industry, some of whom have been on the show, um, some of whom are uh, not yet, but that, uh, you know, I see around and, and uh, who have really made a difference. And I think that idea that, you know, you got to start somewhere, it may take time to bear the fruits of the labor, but you got to start somewhere is, is really powerful. I think there are two points that you made, both of which I agree with. Uh, one, the idea that making change is challenging and you need to um, be patient about it. But then the second thing is how people make differences by essentially finding affinity groups. And there are these affinity groups that kind of move through the ecosystem. You know, not, not you know, I mean, they add some people, they, they discard, you know, people sometimes leave. But it is pretty, I mean, it's... Whether it's good or not, I mean, you probably looked at this from both sides, I think, where on the one hand, you can see how when you find an affinity group and you stick with it, it's really powerful because, I mean, executives do this all the time. You have a new CEO and he or she will bring in a group of people who they've worked with at their last company and you sort of see because those are the people who they trust. But on the other hand, it does sort of can make it hard for some other people to break in who might not have been in the, some of the traditional groups, but who could also offer real complementary value. Well, I also think what's interesting, I, I, you know, you said you, you're always in the room where it happens to him, which made me think about Hamilton. Um, you know, that was another time, you know, and there have been many in history where, where, you know, powerful groups of people accidentally found each other and made a huge difference in the world. And, you know, the common theme of serendipity, but, but also recognizing esprit de corps and, and common, you know, common goals is, is, you know, probably the important, the thing that makes a difference in the world ultimately. So. All righty. Well, we'll go with that. Please remember to rate us on iTunes, leave a comment, and help others discover the show. You can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech, at the Timmerman Report. And you can follow the wonderful and inimitable Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, Manat Health, for today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytical capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team, together with its parent, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team, is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in quarantine. Be well. <laughs> Goodbye from the Zoom. <laughs> <laughs>